Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today, we have two great guests. First, we have our co-host, Tyler Kalashnik. Tyler, uh, my, one of my partners in the municipal bond finance and does affordable housing work. Tyler, thank you for, for joining us. Say, say hello to the listeners. Hello, listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I've been trying to break through and get on the podcast for few years now so this is big opportunity it took a big bribe yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a cheap cheap date so well tyler's practice really dovetails into our, our featured guest of today matt fiascone president of the habitat company matt thanks so much for joining the show i'm glad to be here thanks for having me well thanks for coming on matt um 50 years in business uh, the habitat company big organization why don't you start by just telling our listeners that don't know the Habitat Company uh, a little bit about the company? Sure. So we are. This is our 50th anniversary in business. Founded in 1971 by Daniel Levin, who remains our active chairman and founder, and had a uh, a career prior to Habitat uh, becoming an entity in the real estate development world and specifically and primarily in housing. Dan was a Detroit native who uh, came here for, for college and law school at the University of Chicago, and then uh, went back to Detroit for a short while, but ended up as an attorney representing a, a Chicago developer and relocated here uh, permanently in the, in the late 50s to uh, move into the real estate development business. And Habitat came out came about because the properties he was developing needed property management and uh, they were using outside outside sources to, to do that and decided that they should uh, capture the fee and control the quality by having the company under uh, common ownership with the development entity. And so over the course of our 50 years, we have developed and acquired property and we've also managed and operated for other clients. And one of the distinguishing factors about the Habitat Company as a housing or multifamily housing company is that we have, for the entire history of the company, operated in the full spectrum of multifamily housing. And by that, I mean everything from the very most affordable, owned by public housing authorities, up through the highest end luxury owned and rented condominiums and apartments, primarily in Chicago. We do operate in six states currently. In addition to Illinois, we operate in Michigan, Indiana, Minnesota, Missouri, and Florida. And we own properties in uh, Michigan, Minnesota, and here in Illinois. Uh, we have owned in other states, but currently it's three of those states. Under management, approximately 25,000 units. We are a large manager for the Chicago Housing Authority and the St. Louis Housing Authority. And then our own portfolio would be uh, the largest, the next largest share after the Chicago Housing Authority of uh, units under management. We have about 850 team members. We operate everything we do. We, we acknowledge that it's successful because of the team. So it's a team member first, first culture here. And uh, we pride ourselves in, in keeping a lot of those team members for a long time. It's a, it's a uh, uh, 
entire culture of longevity. We like to own buildings forever and we like to keep the team together for as long as we possibly can. Thanks you for that overview, Matt. I think anybody who knows your company knows that you guys are a great company in terms of you you manage and own so much affordable housing, you do a really good job with it. And it's a really difficult job if you have this long duration of, of, of doing it. Um, what's going on in the affordable housing market these days? Is there a lot of demand for more units? You know, just give us a little bit of feel for the current market. Well, over the last five years or so, but especially over the last year and a half as we've dealt with the pandemic, it, it seems to me, and I'm not, I'm surely, surely not the only one that has seen this, but society in general has really become aware of the affordable housing crisis and shortage that exists in the United States and particularly in urban areas like Chicago. And uh, we're finally seeing, as I mentioned earlier, Habitat being involved in that, that part of the world, that part of the housing world for our entire history. We're finally seeing that that society awareness is resulting in action and action at a, at a greater level than we've ever seen. In fact, uh, last week, uh, I was in a meeting with Dan Levin and other people, and I said, you know, I, I, I see this, and my career has been uh, in real estate and multifamily housing for about 35 years, and certainly is the most most action I've seen being taken. And Dan said, it's the most I've seen too. And he has 91 years on the planet and, and the majority of those, uh, majority of those involved in housing efforts. So, uh, and that's reflected not only in government action at the federal, state and local levels, but you're now seeing it for the first time in a meaningful way from private business and foundations maybe most notably and recognizable to most people is Amazon has a $2 billion commitment to, to build 20,000 units in the three markets where they're the largest, three markets that they're large employers in. They're, while they're the most visible, they're certainly not the only one. Not a week has gone by in the last you know 18 months where I haven't been on the phone with one of our capital sources, our, our equity joint venture partners, in the market rate world uh, where I haven't gotten an inquiry like, how can we get involved? We need to be involved in, in, in affordable housing and how can we do that? I think we are at the, at the very early stages of making a difference. That said, the problem is enormous and it all, it all boils down to we have underproduced housing in this country, not just affordable housing. We have under, underproduced housing in this country for decades. And perhaps since, you know, maybe 10 years or so after World War II, post-World War II, there were hundreds of thousands of housing units built in this country for the returning soldiers. And since that effort, really, there has not been a supply-demand balance. Supply has always trailed demand on an overall basis. Certainly, there have been times where our We've, we've had housing bubbles and everybody remembers those with, with some degree of pain, but they're all, always segmented in one either geographic area or one economic segment of the market. And when you look at it as overall housing units needed versus housing units available, there's an undersupply and that has continued to uh, widen. 
hopefully now we're at the at the point where we can start making a dent in that and narrowing it down. Yeah, I heard something interesting the other day, just as a in a conversation, I think with at National Council of State Housing Agencies. But if you think about the RAD program, which is rental assistance demonstration for public housing going to <clears throat> being recapitalized, uh, that's really you know the Carter administration kind of did all that housing. And, and so that's just now catching up to be, you know, rehabbed. Um, so to your point about just kind of the, the mismatch of supply and demand. Um, yeah. I do think, you know, to your point, the phrase I've heard a lot recently, the, the pandemic helped health and housing really, although they've been working together, they've um, really come to the forefront as housing at the front of, you know, as a job creator, it's, it's important for uh, employees, but also healthy living space. And um, so has that to any extent impacted your designs post pandemic with, with kind of that more uh, top of mind thinking about health? I think that we're still at the very early stage of how that impacts designs. We all, all like to think that we've always designed buildings that have healthy elements to it. I think where there's a more immediate impact, uh, is in the provision of health-related services on uh, on site or nearby, so social services, mental health services, and uh, supportive services, especially in the affordable space, but even broader and looking to to have access to your resident access for your residents to those types of services. Do you all have social services on staff that you? you place near your communities or do you work with third-party agencies or companies to help Both depending on what the ownership. So in, in most situations, we're operating as, as a property manager for a different property owner unrelated to us. But so in some of those, take Chicago Housing Authority, for example, they contract with Catholic charities to provide social services at various of their properties. Um, but at some of our own owned assets, we have an affiliation with a not-for-profit that we actually sponsor and our, their primary, uh, financial support to, um, called Generations Housing Initiatives that does employ, some of them are licensed social workers, others are social workers, uh, as a, as a career to be on site at various apartment properties, apartment communities, providing those services to our residents. Yeah. Well, I never, I, I've seen them on deals before, so I've, I've not realized the connection. So very cool. And Tyler, I also just wanted to talk to you about, since you work with so many affordable housing developers and various capacities, whether they're bond deals, light tech deals, all sorts of interesting configurations, but are you seeing the demand as well? Yes, um, not not just from a pure market-driven perspective in terms of needing housing stock, but there's been some pretty um, exciting, at least for, for those in the industry, developments legislatively recently with the, the 4% tax credit fix happening um, at the end of last year, which, you know, produces the ability for developers to realize more equity from tax credits, um, you know, the, I touched on the RAD program, 
has been uh, very popular for public housing agencies to uh, be able to essentially partner with um, private developers and being able to rehab those units um, to bring them up to date. You know, there's usually a, a large amount of rehab that needs to be done on a lot of those properties. And um, HUD has a, a, a section 202 um, that, that gets used for senior properties too, that that budget uh, increased um, this year. So that's, it's all good news, I think. And it's, it's kept us really busy. Um, but that also leads to, you know, constraints and, and scarce resources, a lot of demand, uh, especially on the bond bond side. Uh, a lot of people are seeking to do what I mentioned, the, the 4%, you know, there's two different kinds of tax credits, obviously, but uh, the 4% tax credits come along with bond deals. And for those, you have to have um, an allocation, basically permission from the state to do it. And uh, that there are several states. I know a couple of them were mentioned where, where Habitat is, but where volume cap is just getting um, eaten up pretty quickly. So that's that's been a challenge this year so far of developers seeking volume cap. And then on the other end, um, <clears throat> the state agencies that allocate the volume cap trying to come up with fair and reasonable ways to, to deal with the demand. And so there's a little bit of frustration so far. I think they'll, they'll come up with new and, and creative ways to do it. But uh, Right now, there's a lot of people waiting in line uh, with with applications for projects. Yeah, and the, the definition of fair is is one that's uh, subject to interpretation and not in a negative way. But all the allocators also have policy motivation as to how they're how they're trying to allocate, and so that complicates things too. Well, Matt, do you want to tell us um, and our listeners a little bit about some of your specific developments. I know you have some really interesting ones with 43 Green and with Ogden Commons. Um, you know, I think that if you were to talk about those, they kind of highlight some of the, the really interesting, cool developments that the Habitat company is doing. Sure. Those are two of, of three sizable uh, mixed income, mixed use prop, uh, developments that we have at various stages uh, active in Chicago right now. Uh, Ogden Commons is the furthest one along. It's uh, located on Ogden Avenue, hence the name, immediately across Ogden Avenue to the north from Mount Sinai Hospital. So uh, in the North Lawndale community, severely disinvested neighborhood for uh, many, many years. And um, the site that Ogden Commons sits on is actually a combined site. The first phases are on about a four acre parcel that uh, was formerly public housing, so owned by the Chicago Housing Authority. And, uh, and then uh, Mount Sinai Hospital owned an adjoining piece to the west. And then Cinespace Film Studios, which is the other major employer in, in the North Lawndale area and is also located immediately on the other side of Ogden Avenue to the east of Mount Sinai Hospital, owned an adjoining piece to the east of the Chicago Housing Authority's piece. And so the assemblage was almost 10 acres. So the plan, which is approved and being executed, first phase building was a just under 50,000 square foot, three-story commercial building. And the first tenant opened in there last month, which is a Trust bank uh, branch, bringing financial services also to an underserved community. And then there are three restaurants 
locating in there on the ground floor, all of which will be open at various points for the rest of this year. And then the upper two floors are uh, going to be occupied by Mount Sinai Hospital for the provision of outpatient sur surgery centers and dialysis and uh, uh, other testing and day patient services. And then the next phase, which should break ground still this year, is about 120 units of residential housing. Uh, and that's the first phase of three. At the end, there'll be about 350 units of, of residential housing there and also another two commercial buildings fronting on Ogden Avenue. So at the end of the day, about 350 residential units, which are mixed income. So approximately a third, very affordable, a third, moderately affordable, and a third market rate. And then the remaining two commercial buildings, about equal size of the first one. So somewhere around 150,000 square feet of commercial space at full completion. Needless to say, a, a huge economic driver and revitalizer for that for the North Lawndale community and supported by many units of government. The city of Chicago has, has uh, neighborhood opportunity funds invested in there and the restaurants in particular. CHA uh, not only provided the land at a very below market cost, part of it's on a ground lease and part of it's sold. Um, but CHA actually invested uh, through their foundation in the commercial building. And then uh, PNC, the site is in an opportunity zone. So PNC actually put up opportunity zone equity into the commercial building and debt. So multi-layered, multi-stakeholders, multi multi-supporters of very impactful development. And is, did CHA do that through uh, their foundation with donation tax credits? Is that part uh, of the... I don't think they use donation tax credits okay. there. So. Yeah, it's a, a nice feature in Illinois. We have used that in other places, but not there. Um, and then 43 Green, we have an assemblage of three city-owned sites, and we're actually working on a, assembling one or two other privately-owned sites along 43rd Street at the Green Line, hence the name, uh, nearest north-south cross street is uh, Calumet. And uh, first building, about 110 unit uh, mid-rise apartment building with ground floor retail, which we hope to be uh, community um, based, hopefully may a small grocery store, something that's, that's uh, accretive to the community. The Green Line stop on 43rd Street literally ends right at the site so you don't get more transit oriented than than the these sites uh city is backing it with a tiff and nine percent tax credit allocation from this the city so the first building is is well knock on wood if i had some wood around uh is funded we're still waiting for final uh debt and equity uh commitments but our and equity being purchase acquisition of the tax credits but uh, we're highly confident that that will break ground here late third quarter, 2021. And the multi-phase again will be over 300 units of residential and meaningful retail uh, office and service space on the ground floor. We're doing that in joint venture with a group called P3 Markets, a minority owned 
uh, emerging developer, and we're providing the vast majority of capital needs, which are in these deals uh, upfront pursuit costs and formation costs and uh, other working capital. And, and they're providing uh, on-the-ground services through the entitlement process. And, and then it's really a mentorship to get them off, off the ground uh, to do further developments, hopefully on their own or hopefully in a partnership with us, but where they can take a more uh, leadership role in the future. I love these two projects because you cannot get a, a better compilation of every real estate concept and buzzword and kind of like you got opportunity zone projects, TIF financing, tax, low-income housing tax credits. You have, I mean, you have like every different combination of, um, of sophisticated uh, techniques all, all together in one. It's just, it's a lot of moving parts, but you know, when, when people, uh, asked me like, well, did you actually run into any opportunity? Do you see any opportunity zone work being done? It's like there, it's like yes, there are small deals being done, and there's everything to like Ogden Commons. Like you, you know, the, these are the kind of hallmark examples of how these programs actually work. Yeah, I, I don't want to let the segue go either here because one, I want to congratulate everyone on the on this podcast for not mentioning construction costs yet, but. Since we're talking about new new projects, and uh, Matt did say knock on wood, you know, I think we have to ask how on those projects have you managed construction costs? We all know lumber prices are you know out of control, and uh, even beyond that too. Yeah, um, well, steel prices steel, are just high, steel so. is high. All the all the plumbing components, copper is crazy. It it certainly uh, certainly can cost you some sleep at night and. I'm going to just back up one second because uh, Phil's point about how comp- complex these are. Yeah, it's exciting to say you put it put it together, and you when you look at all the all the moving pieces. But the other side of that is how complicated it is, and hopefully this this movement into uh, the awareness level of affordability and the need to address it also leads to to some solutions that make it simpler because. Part of the barrier is all that complexity costs money, and it's not just it's not just the uh, construction costs that are going up. The layers of professionals that have to be involved to to manage your way through all all those layers of financing and government programs and and approvals and compliance. Uh, affordable what? projects end up costing more than market rate projects, and the rents are way less. That's the whole idea that the rents are going to be less. So hopefully there's some that the awareness builds awareness to that, that issue too. And we can find some solutions to it. Yeah. Those professional costs. So they're, they're burden. I don't want to call it out that you lawyers, but it's a big part, but there's accountants too. And, you know, t- tax compliance work and, and just the fees for applying, um, and, and getting volume cap on bond deals, for instance, can be pretty steep. I mean, so you're right. Yeah, there's a lot. Your point's well taken on um, working with mentoring, you know, a, a group like P3 to front those upfront costs. So we have a similar partnership at Ogden Commons with Mount Sinai and Cinespace are both both partners and sharing in 
and some of the responsibilities and sharing in any any profits that come out of it too. Those costs, all the upfront costs, we we bear those and we we take those on. And if it doesn't work out, you know, we're out for those. We're out. We're out of those things, which makes it harder to to bring along a emerging emerging developer. No, it's great that you guys are doing that, showing them the ropes and, and helping you know get a real another a hallmark project on the resume. Um, and for folks that don't know, Cinespace is a really, really big operation. I mean, they do Chicago Fire and they do all the Chicago shows and a lot of other stuff. So, I mean, you, it's actually a, a really big organization that produces the highest end shows on, on major networks. Yep. It, it, Alex would be a great guest on your podcast in the future, Phil. Ah, I'll keep that in mind. We're always looking for good guests. Because it's, um, really, it's really a real estate use. The, the star power is already too high on this thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, they they basically have just uh, they they lease all the the sound stages to the producers and the Hollywood studios. So he, he's really in the real estate business. He's not in the in the entertainment production business. That's interesting. Uh, well, Matt, you know, speaking of uh, star power and uh, and our guests. You know, tell us a little bit about how you find yourself to the Habitat Company. I know you're with Inland for a very long time, but um, you know, I, I'm always interested in people's careers and, and how they got to where they are. And um, you know, I'd love to hear about that transition. So, actually, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll mark 10 years here at the Habitat Company. It's been an amazingly fast uh, 10 years. But coming out of the uh, coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, 2008, 2009, I had, uh, what I'll call a career midlife crisis and, uh, decided I, I needed to, uh, try to do a refresh and repositioning of my focus and, and the remainder of my career such that it, such that it was, I, I clearly has not, have not been one to move jobs around, uh, a lot since I, I've only had two in 35 years, but uh, I really wanted to get in back into housing. When I started it in, in, in inland in 1986, they were the largest landlord in the Midwest by far, uh, with over 40,000 apartments. Over the course of my time there, they obviously transitioned into many different types of properties, and today I would say are more known as a owner of retail and commercial property than than multifamily. But I really wanted to get back into housing because I developed this theory or or aggregated this theory from people I talked to and things I read in the industry that uh, made housing the easiest uh, type of property type for me to understand and understand the supply and demand of and also understand that the changes in our world, particularly the um, technological changes that have been coming at, at an increasingly rapid pace over the last, whatever, 20 plus years, that residential property would have, would be least impacted or actually in some ways most positively impacted by technology evolution. I kind of overlook the uh, distribution and logistics part of real estate but I didn't have any experience in that. So even if I, if, even if I had recognized it, I can't say that I would have, I would have headed in that direction. But when you look at the other major 
property types, retail, clearly uh, negatively impacted by technological advances and um, office as well. The amount of office space, uh, even pre-COVID, you seem to need less and less of it because uh, of technological efficiencies and and hospitality, as we're seeing out of, coming out of the pandemic, uh, you need less business hotels when we can have Zoom meetings or uh, uh, virtual virtual uh, in-person interactions, which were all uh, accelerated during the pandemic. So I knew I wanted to focus on multifamily. My whole career and my whole life has been in the Chicago area. And so I started off on a search for a, a new professional home and intersected with a opening at Habitat and joined here in uh, first week of August in 2011. And uh, my role at the time at the beginning was um, head of finance and investment. And then in 2014, we had a change in, in leadership here and I became the president. And been an amazing, amazingly positive, uh, not without its challenges and certainly not without days that I, uh, I wish it hadn't occurred, but on balance, it's been an amazingly great, great run. And I look to uh, fi finish my career here, hopefully not soon, but also maybe not too much in the distant future. My wife would prefer uh, sooner than later. Well, that's a great story, Matt. And, um, there was another component when we, when you, that you shared with us first, and um, when you made the move, part of the reason why you wanted to make the move, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners as well, is that you didn't want to be so responsible for all of the people that you had to be responsible for. And so, you know, initially the idea was was to, to shift away from that because the, the Great Recession had such an effect on you. If you could tell us a little bit about that component to your decision making I, yeah. I really enjoyed hearing about it the first time <laughs> so you, you take good notes good notes Bill <laughs> um, you know coming out of the Great Recession was a uh, devastating event for a lot of companies and careers and uh, caused a lot of disruption in the real estate business in particular and so we had like I will, I will venture to say every other real estate company when, when we were at Inland, we had to make adjustments in our staffing and, uh, and, you know, let people go have some layoffs. And that was really difficult for me personally to see that uh, happen and, and have to be part of that. And I said to myself that I really didn't want to go through that again. And so I was going to find a position in a, in a perfect world where I could be essentially a one person operation within a bigger team, but uh, where I didn't have my decisions wouldn't uh, necessarily impact people's livelihoods. I didn't have the responsibility of making decisions that would, would impact their, uh, their future employment. And uh, in my initial role, that was essentially what it was. I was out uh, buying property, capitalizing capitalizing properties and uh, forming new joint venture uh, relationships. So really growing the company and that all, all worked great. And then uh, obviously in my, my current role, lots of decisions impact, impact uh, 
all 850 people. And uh, COVID was a really trying, trying time, especially the beginning of it was, was hard. But we made it through. We, we didn't have to uh, have any layoffs. The leadership of the company, the officer level people did take temporary pay cuts uh, and all did so voluntarily and without disruption and without uh, angst. And we were able to restore all those last year. So I can get back to feeling like uh, like we navigated in, in really good shape. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that what the Habitat company provides is more recession proof than, than most companies because people are always going to need a place to live. Um, so hopefully, you know, knock on wood or God willing, if when the next one comes, uh, you'll be in a position to have to make less difficult decisions than some other companies might. Um, I, I hope you're right. I think, I think that's true, but uh, seeing the pandemic, you know, we had a, like all owners of apartment buildings, we had a lot of people who couldn't pay, they lost their jobs. And, and so even though it is an essential service, you end up working through it with, with residents who uh, are in difficult situations and that impacts our income too. And our ability to, to pay, to pay employees if the income on buildings is less, even if we don't own them, we, our fees are a percentage of, of the income coming in. So they go down too. Another thing I wanted to ask you about for your career is you said that you've had two jobs, but you've had probably many jobs, but you've worked for two companies. But the world seems to have a more trans, transient, transitory workforce. It's you just people move companies more and more often. It seems that way. I know it's happening. The legal world is much more transitory than it was 20 years ago. And so I was just, you know, um, you've worked for two companies for 35 years, you know, and do you, can you tell us all just about your experience and just help helping the kids understand that if you get in with a good company and work hard, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot you can grow in, in a company and you can, you can make a lot of a career within one company. I never thought about it that way exactly, but you are perfectly right. I had the amazing good fortune, uh, I've referred to it in the past as, as serendipity of actually working at Inland as a summer job in college um, before there were formal internships like most companies or many companies have today. I answered a help wanted ad uh, the summer after my sophomore year of, of college for a summer bookkeeper. And, uh, and that company happened to be Inland. And it was growing so rapidly, this is 1983, that uh, uh, the, the only place they could put a desk for me was in a closet that happened to be outside, immediately outside of Dan Goodwin, the founder and chairman of Inland's office at the time. And so I couldn't close the door. The door, there wasn't enough room to close the door. The door stayed open all the time. And uh, so anytime he left his office, or came back to his office, he basically was staring me in the face. And, and I got to, I was 19 years old. I got to know this guy who, who already had built up quite an empire and, you know, is, is a legend in, in real estate today. And so 
that parlayed into going back at winter break and the next summer after my junior year. And then ultimately, I did have a, a, a stint at another company for seven months post-graduation. Uh, so it was actually three companies. But uh, uh, I went back there in January of 86, and he, he created a job for me. There was no real role. I became an assistant to one of the executives there uh, and uh, learned asset management and investment structuring. And really, I was running numbers for a bunch of uh, investment programs that they were sponsoring. And, and so I went from that to a more asset management role. And then I started moved into transactional real estate. And then I moved from transactional real estate. So primarily selling uh, apartment properties that they owned in the in the mid 80s and, and early 90s. And then they started assembling a land portfolio. And I, I learned the land business from the bottom up and then became a developer of land and land sites. So over my 25 years, I probably had six or seven different career experiences and different titles, but, you know, one company. So, and even here at Habitat, I've had two distinct jobs in the 10 years. So I, th I think that's a really good uh, insight. Eight, probably eight different jobs I, I could describe on a resume. Uh, it just all happens to be at two different companies. Uh, that's awesome. Do you have any advice for um, people just starting out in real estate? It's, it's always been a, a different industry that uh, traditional education hasn't always geared people. I think it's, it's better now. There are real estate programs, um, but, you know, from someone who started as a summer bookkeeper to uh, the president of, of this large company, um, do you have any advice for people starting out in real estate? I, I think it's, it's still a really great industry that uh, it's actually enhanced by technology, not disrupted by technology. It will always have a personal element to it especially on the residential side. But because people use the real estate, that's how you make money. You get people to use it. It really can't be, can't be replaced. The human element can't be replaced. And also the entrepreneurial element. It really is a local business. And while companies, including ours, can operate in many, many different markets, it's a, it's a distinct advantage to have local knowledge. And that also is a human element. It's hard to if not impossible to train a computer to have local knowledge. Uh, so I would say if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and uh, a human inclination, it's a great place to be. And, and maybe just a could be a little bit of a plug for affordable housing, but I'd also be interested to hear your um, contrasting or comparing thoughts on this versus other components of, of real estate. But it does seem... You know, there's less movement maybe in, in affordable housing. You know, sometimes people will um, go off and start their own development company, but it is a very tight knit um, in terms of who the players are. And, and, and you see the same people over and over, which to me is valuable in, in building relationships. And I think is to others that enjoy that um, aspect of it. But it also means I think you can develop friendships too in the industry and everyone treats each other a little um, with a lot of respect and camaraderie. So maybe, 
maybe you have the similar experience or not, but uh, be interested to hear thoughts there. I, th- I think the real estate world is a very small and collegial world. I still go, I still go to a handful of conferences every year and I have friends in every, every company in Chicago that, you know, we are competitors, but nobody is, is adversarial. Everybody is friendly. And I, I, I think the affordable housing aspect of it too, I, I see in a lot of the young team members that we hire here and, and the longtime ones, but especially the younger team members, newcomers to the organization really thrive on the, on the social responsibility aspects of affordable housing. And you, you also don't get that in many other industries either. It's a direct correlation to doing good in the world uh, by being involved in, in affordable housing. I'd also say too, I think we talked about this in our initial meeting, but it's a great example. P3, you know, public-private partnership gets thrown around all the time now as, as a method of getting projects done. But the affordable housing and the tax credit to me represents one of the best examples of, of a public-private partnership with um, in the proper incentives. So it's, to your point, intellectually challenging, but also socially beneficial. It also seems like P3 and the incentives that go along with it are like one of the last vestiges where people across the aisle work together. Like it it crosses political spectrum, you know, in this fragmented world where everyone's pushed out farther to the side. It actually, the parties involved come from very different places and all work together. Kind of, you don't see that everywhere where there's a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds all working together towards one goal. I agree with that. And that's kind of a nice way to wrap it up. Uh, Tyler, on that, on that cheerful note, um, Tyler, Matt, thank you. Thank you both for joining us. Um, really appreciate hearing about the Habitat company and, and celebrating its 50 years in business. It was great talking with you both. Yes, yeah, thank you very much. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 